Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Today we hit a threshold that has gotten a lot of people excited. Ten-year Treasury yields touched, kissed that 3% mark. Uh, there were bells ringing across Wall Street, and then it dipped right back down. Uh, joining us now for some of the implications on a broad level of what higher Treasury yields uh, could mean is Damian Sassauer, fixed income strategist at Bloomberg Intelligence. He joins us here in our 1130 studios. Uh, Damon, I want to look at this from the emerging markets point of view because there has been so much money that has flowed flooded into developing nations. So now that we're seeing higher yields in the U.S., what's the implication? Well, I'll tell you what's gone on here. We've seen uh, emerging market U.S. dollar debt uh, come off. Returns have declined quite considerably year to date. I think they're off, you know, 2.2% or something. But yields have risen sharply. Um, and so what that's done is it's created a bit of an anomaly. So you have EM dollar debt issued by, you know, all these, you know, emerging market nations like Turkey, Argentina, Brazil, you name it, looking rather attractive relative to their local government debt, which is denominated in local currency. I mean, basically- Wait, wait, wait. hold on one second. Back up. This is important, okay? <laughs> so basically people went into emerging markets debt in local currencies, betting that the dollar would continue to weaken. As U.S. yields continue to rise, you are starting to get a bid on the dollar. And this this leads is, to your issue, right? Yeah, I mean, okay. I mean, we we've long been an advocate that uh, investors are um, perhaps you know getting ahead of themselves in sacrificing spread risk for foreign exchange risk. And when they do that, they probably don't realize that that's inherently more risky as local currencies have historically exhibited much greater volatility than spreads, right? So what you're seeing is a lot of anomalies. You're basically seeing EM dollar debt now, the yields looking relatively attractive to EM local yields, probably at the, you know, the, the, the gap between the two is at the tightest level since March of 2009, right after the global financial, right at the height of the global financial crisis. And then if you look at EM dollar debt relative to US high yield, which is actually up on the year, and if you recall, you know, we had talked about this previously, the yields are now at the widest levels I've seen since 2016. So on a relative basis to US credit, it's actually looking rather attractive as well. Damien, how big is this market? So EM dollar debt, sovereign, quasi, and corporate, I mean, three to four trillion today. Okay. A lot of investments are done through exchange-traded funds, or are they done through actually buying the debt? A lot is done through ETFs. That's okay. exactly right. All right. So if you're buying it through an ETF or an exchange-traded note or some other kind of derivative product, are you the insurance company, the pension fund, or are you the trader? So if, I mean, if you're a... ETF investor, historically, we've been led to believe that those are retail investors, mom and pops, 
But increasingly, what we're realizing that a lot of institutions, a lot of fund managers use those instruments as a way of offsetting risk in other areas or perhaps, you know, quickly adding to risk in certain areas and dialing it in. Okay. And they're doing this because what? They want to hold the debt long term. They want to take the coupon and take the principal payment. Absolutely not. not. Right. Absolutely not. They're trying to get exposure to an asset class that may have a higher yield or a higher beta than another one. Okay. Just last point. The amount of money that is going into exchange-traded funds that are backed by emerging market debt far outweighs the actual amount of emerging market debt that's being issued. That's not true. Okay. Now, here, now here's the interesting thing, because I see where you're headed there, and, I, and it's something we've also talked about before, which is the liability mismatch between the underlying bonds in these ETFs, which may not be as liquid as the daily liquidity you're being provided by the ETFs themselves, right? Especially, PIM, in local currency debt, right? So, you know, the real risk here is that, you know, you've got local government debt that is, you know, investors can go move in and out of intraday, yet the underlying bonds don't trade that liquid. And so, you know, yes, if yields continue to go up in the U.S., Lisa, to your point, you know, it, you know, we may see a we may see a little pu- a push and pull there. We may see us reach a point where, um, you know, investors. I don't want to say they can't get their money back from an ETF. Far be it from me to even you know conceive of that. But yeah, those are those are stress signals. Those are black swan events that we look for and that we're looking at. Yeah, I, I want to build on what Pim was talking about. ETFs being used for quick bets on emerging markets. Is there a threshold at which uh, you know U.S. yields cross a certain point and people just yank their money out of developing markets and go back to uh, to the U.S. You know, I, 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 to, to, to make a call on a particular yield threshold that's going to drive investors away from it is, is, is kind of difficult to say. Have we seen it already? You know, I, I, I don't think we've, we have seen you know, fits of it for sure. And in certain environments, absolutely. I think the one area right now, and this is the one, you know, the one thing that, you know, a lot of people have kind of, it's killed people in EM is the U.S. dollar, right? The U.S. dollar has come off, you know, quite considerably in the last year, mostly because of the yuan, right? The China renminbi has just been on a a straight shot higher. And if you saw overnight, there's been talk that they may start easing rates in China, which, you know, is kind of taking people by surprise here today in the market, because what would that mean? That might mean that growth is slowing in China. And what would that mean for all of the largest constituent in these ETFs and these indices? If, If growth starts to slow in Southeast Asia and it filters into Latin America and in the EMEA region, because of China being the largest trading partner of emerging markets, that can be a real risk and that can drive investors into the dollar, into the and, and when the dollar starts to rise, EM currencies tend to fall and local debt tends to get hit pretty hard. And we've seen that happen quite often in, uh, in recent memory. So yeah. Thanks for being with us. Always a pleasure. Always learn something. Uh, Damien Sassauer is fixed income strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, giving us the wherewithal when it comes to emerging market debt. Always, uh, always a pleasure. A lot of people are going to dissect the key moment when U.S. 10-year Treasury yields hit that 3% mark only to come back down. Here to talk about how much he cares about this uh, sort of threshold, this uh, magical number, is Jason Trenert, Managing Partner, Chairman, and Chief Executive Officer of Strategus Research Partners in New York. Jason, thank you so much for being with us. How much do you care that 10-year Treasury yields hit 3%? I, I frankly, I only care to the extent to which I think it's uh, a sign of a strengthening economy. I, I don't. Do you think it's I, that? I, 
I do. I, I do. I think that, um, listen, nominal GDP growth this year should be somewhere, in our opinion, between 5 and 6%. And um, generally speaking, in the past, 10-year Treasury yields are roughly where uh, nominal GDP growth is. So, in my opinion, we've been much lower than that for a variety of reasons. A lot of it has to do with financial repression and the Fed's propensity and the other central bank's propensity to buy treasuries. So, but I think to, to the extent to which we're normalizing interest rates, it, it would be natural for interest rates to move higher. Jason, I want to push back a little bit. Some people are arguing that the reason why U.S. Treasury yields are rising so rapidly on the longer end right now has to do with oil. Oil prices at their highest since 2014. And uh, arguably, that could crimp growth in the U.S., No. It could. Um, it could. But you also, I think, um, there's also the fiscal stimulus, which, in my opinion, for, for whatever reason, I'm not quite sure why people have um, stopped talking about it but, uh, or, um, or have written it off. But in my opinion, the fiscal stimulus that's likely to hit the economy this year uh, is lo- very large and should increase real GDP growth by 50 to 75 basis points. So you'd have something well over well over 3% real this year. Plus, you have somewhat stronger wages, um, so somewhat stronger wage growth as well. So energy would be an offset. That's true. To trade might be a little bit of an offset. But I think if you uh, – a counterbalance to that would be the enormous fiscal stimulus that's, that's coming down the pike. So good for stock prices, Jason? I think so. I, don't, I certainly don't think it's cons- inconsistent with with, with uh, stronger uh, stock prices. It may be somewhat inconsistent with an expansion of earnings multiples. And I, I think that, you know, that is a distinction. In, in my opinion, over since the financial crisis, you've had a situation where financial assets greatly outperformed the real economy. And in my opinion, we're going back to a period now where. The real economy is likely to outperform the financial assets of financial markets, which is another way of saying you're not going to get big multiple expansion. Earnings will grow, but um, but the market will probably grow more in line with what earnings growth is, as opposed to you know 2014, 15, and 16 earnings were flat uh, on a nominal basis at, at around 118 dollars, and um, and yet the market continued to rise. And I think here you're going to a different, you're going to a little bit of a different paradigm. So don't be uh, don't be surprised if you see a flat uh, stock market, but good economic reports from the United States. Yeah, I mean, I think my own opinion is that the market will probably be up somewhere in the order of seven to eight percent this year in terms of price return, maybe another two percent for for dividends. So you might get something close to double digits. But earnings will be up much more meaningfully than that. Earnings could be up. uh, Earnings the first quarter will be up probably somewhere around 20 percent. And so um, so the idea is that earnings growth, the market will be up probably around in line, if not a little bit less than what earnings growth is, probably for the foreseeable future, as long as interest rates are rising. What metric are you looking at to uh, to see if you're right with this thesis? Well, I think earnings are one of the you know, earnings are probably one of the better uh, better things to look at, and just the, the performance um, uh, of the market. Uh, I, I think those would be the the, the primary uh, primary things to look at. I, I find there's a lot of skepticism about um, about the potential for the economy to do better. 
I'm not quite sure why. It, you know, earnings recessions are twice as likely as, as economic recessions. And while there have been earnings recessions that were not accompanied by an economic recession, you've never had an economic recession that was accompanied by stronger earnings. And so, uh, in my opinion, the, the most meaningful thing to look at with regard to the efficacy of the fiscal stimulus that was passed would really be capital spending. And I think capital spending is, is just the policy lags are long and variable, and it, it takes a while. And I think in the immediacy of our environment, we, we tend to expect things to happen all at once. And, and again, the tax package was, was only passed three and a half months ago. So I think it's going to take a little time for capital spending to show up. Um, and I think uh, now you probably should, should start to see consumer spending pick up as well. Jason, you've written in the past that Donald Trump is underowned. What do you mean by that, and is that still true? Well, yeah, we had written, you know, uh, back to 2000. In 2011, we actually uh, wrote a piece about the potential appeal of Donald Trump uh, as a political candidate when he flirted with running. And then in 2015, when he announced for president, we we uh, suggested that he had a shot of winning. And then after he won, we suggested it would be good for the the markets. And so, um, you know, it became less and less crazy as time went on. It, it still, you know, seems kind of crazy. But the, the idea of Donald Trump being under own, really, we wrote that last uh, last summer, and it had to do with the fiscal stimulus. Uh, you know, we had found that certainly the administration had some a rough spot at the beginning, or continues to have some rough spots, clearly, but w- with regard to its legislative agenda, and particularly health care. And I think as a result, people were uh, quite skeptical that anything could get done as far as tax reform uh, was concerned. And we were we were of the view that that idea was very much under-owned, that there, there was a very good chance of tax reform uh, getting, uh, getting through, and it, and it did. And, of course, you also have the regulatory reform, regulatory easing, particularly as it relates to uh, the financial sector, which, uh, again, in our opinion, is probably being underestimated in terms of its potential impact um, on the velocity of money. Uh, There are a lot of reserves in the system, but the velocity of money has been weak, really, since the financial crisis. Got to leave it there, but thanks very much for being with us. Jason Trennert is Managing Partner, Chairman and Chief Executive of Strategus Research Partners. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
We have been talking about what a big rash of earnings we are getting this week. The biotechnology uh, area is similarly seeing some pretty big earnings. Here with us to walk us through them is Max Neeson, biotech pharma and healthcare columnist for Bloomberg Gadfly. So I want to start with the earnings. We got results already from Eli Lilly uh, and Biogen so far today. They were kind of mixed. Both uh, companies are seeing their shares down. We're expecting Amgen earnings after the bell. What stands out to you so far? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the thing about Biogen that I think kind of sparked the negative reaction is that uh, sales disappointed for Spinraza, uh, which is a, a drug it, it kind of got recently approved for a rare uh, a rare new neurodegenerative condition. It's been launching extraordinarily well, but in this quarter, I grew sales by only a million sequentially. It's because of kind of a strange dynamic with that particular drug where uh, patients start on the drug, they take a lot of it, and they graduate to a, a more a kind of gradual intermittent dosage. This is something that was known, but to kind of just see it was a bit of a shock. And in the broader context of the company where they have a declining older set of multiple sclerosis drugs, uh, it's just sort of scary to see and, and puts pressure on them to, to maybe do a deal or, or find some more in the pipeline. Didn't they have a deal, though, I believe, with Ionis Pharmaceuticals? Tell us about yeah, what happened so, there. Yeah, so that was actually the original developer of Spinraza. And, um, you know, it's a decent-sized deal. It, it it gives them more access to that company's uh, pipeline of medicines. But they're sort of hoping for, for lightning to strike twice. You know, before Spinraza, Ionis had a, a pretty long history of, of drug development failures. And, um, you know, they might get another Spinraza, but that's kind of the extreme optimist's case there. Uh, the more likely is that, that they'll either get nothing or or something of a, a little bit less value. So I want to talk about Eli Lilly as well, because they boosted their full year revenue forecast and it was 2.2% above estimates. And yet the shares are down. I don't get it. Why? Um, you know, I think it might be to some extent because that beat came in large part from uh, the company's diabetes franchise. And that's just sort of a, a scary thing to rely on, given uh, the amount of price pressure and, and competitiveness in that particular uh, sector of the market. Also, the company is is pretty heavily, or investors at least, are heavily watching an upcoming trial of one of its diabetes medicines, which is going head to head with really good data from a rival Novo Nordisk treatment. If it doesn't measure up, uh, things will go from you know kind of nerve wracking to tr- truly scary for what's uh, the company's most important franchise. Um, does Takeda need the deal? We're shifting to Shire and Takeda. Yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah. <laughs> Takeda, six, well, $60 billion, right? I mean, I mean uh, do, why do they need to do this? Uh, I, I think that the CEO, Christopher Weber, is probably feeling some degree of pressure in that shares of the company are, are kind of flat um, during his tenure, and the company lacks really any easily identifiable catalysts or, or drugs in the pipeline that might uh, give it some upside. So this is kind of the, the biggest and boldest of, of possible ways that they might go about this. Whether this is the right way to go about it is is another question, um, you know, because they're, they're likely going to have to deliver an improved price, even on what we've seen so far, which means an incredible amount of debt and a highly dilutive uh, deal for, for shareholders. So it's a lot of risk. And, and it's for Shire, which... You know, even though the company is at a discount to what it might have fetched in the past, there are reasons for that. There are risks to its hemophilia franchise and uh, to its pipeline as well. You know, it would have to really, really outperform on the pipeline side 
uh, to justify this price. So so it's a big risk, even if it is theoretically at least worth it to, for Takeda to make a splash. So uh, the latest on this is that Shire is studying a new takeover bid from Takeda. There already have been four snubs and another suitor that has come in uh, to possibly uh, do something here and then quickly backed up. Uh, Takeda shares down, Shire shares up. Uh, I thought it was interesting, Max, just quickly that uh, some of the rating agencies are looking at possibly downgrading Takeda if they did go through with this deal. Yeah, and that's not a surprise. I mean, Takeda is about the same size as or a little smaller than Shire. And then in addition to the debt that it'd be taking on in this transaction, which uh, could be upped even from from levels that we thought previously if they're raising the the price, uh, they're also taking on a substantial debt load from from Shire, which uh, spent big on Bexalta a couple of years back. So um, it it's definitely comes with some financial risk. And, um, you know, they, they may raise the price. I don't know if they'll have to raise it that much to get this deal done. Um, you know, at the end of the day, Shire was trading around 30 pounds uh, just a few weeks or months ago. And this is at a substantial premium to that. So even if it's more of a stock component that they might like and uh, becomes tricky because some people don't want to own Japanese shares, uh, it's still a pretty good option for, for Shire at least. And they can still kind of hold out hope that someone will swoop in with a, a better, more cash-rich option and then have this kind of sitting on the back burner, which is not the worst outcome. Thanks very much. Max Neeson, Bloomberg Gadfly columnist, all things healthcare. Much appreciated. The shares of Alphabet, the parent company of Google, they are lower by about 4.5% after the company reports results that exceeded analyst estimates yesterday after the market closed. But $7.3 billion, that may be giving some investors pause. That's how much the company is spending on a variety of ventures. And here to tell us more about the company is Alex Webb, Bloomberg Gadfly columnist covering technology. Alex, thanks very much for being with us. Uh, Give us your uh, reaction and your analysis of the report from Alphabet. It seems to be a sort of tacit admission that they recognize that there's the potential for headwinds um, coming up. You know, they they clearly see regulatory pressure being exerted on Facebook. They have a very similar model to Facebook. They um, can target ads at people based on the data they have on those people. And so ensuring that they are a- owning the interaction with the customer through the- their own made um, self-made mobile phones in some in the form of the pixel is one thing and investing in the real infrastructure of the web cloud computing um, network cabling those sort of ideas they that helps build a, a backbone of, of data which can help support their business Alex can you help me understand something I can Alpha- do my best <laughs> <laughs> please do alphabet posted the strongest sales growth in almost four years yesterday the initial response was positive the initial response in pre-trading this morning was positive and then close to around 8 a.m the shares tanked why suddenly did investors start to get nervous about alphabet spending because yes they are going to be spending uh, a substantial amount more and tripled their capital expenditure for the quarter to 7.7 why was this suddenly such a concern? I mean, this sounds like such a cop-out as an answer, but <laughs> I wouldn't put it 
I, I mean, I'd wager that it's just profit-taking. You know, you quite often see this with the big tech stocks. When they have a really good quarter, um, people sense that as a good opportunity to get out, particularly if they've been on a tear of late. And, and you know, that, there's a very good chance that's what's happened with Google. I haven't seen the volumes, which probably would be more indicative of that. But um, I wouldn't be surprised if that is the reason. Equally, as I said, you know, Google is recognizing that down the line they do have challenges coming up. And so if I were to give the non-cop-out answer, it might be on that basis. But I think that's less likely. But if that's the case, isn't it a positive that they're actually spending on diversifying their business? Wouldn't that be uh, something that shareholders should cheer? Yeah, absolutely. But uh, you know, there were some some analyst notes this morning saying that um, they expect some volatility in, in the margins going forward. The margin drop, uh, the um, operating margin dropped from um, twenty seven to twenty three percent, which is you know that's clearly a big drop off. And if they're anticipating that sort of um, lack of consistency was going to become a trend, that perhaps means that people expecting you know stability in the stock um, are, are therefore primed to get out of it. Is it worth noting that a lot of the expense, $2.4 billion of it, I believe it's to purchase the Chelsea Market Building headquarters in New York City for Google? It is worth noting that, but equally, even without that, their spending are um, doubled. You know, so it's still, um, it's still a substantial increase. Uh, I mean, frankly, for something like that, it seems like a, I'm not one to predict the, the, the housing market or the property market in New York, but that's always going to be a prime property and seems you know, a pretty sound investment, particularly if they intend to keep attracting top talent, which likes to live in a big metropolis. Another uh, area that investors are showing increasing queasiness about is uh, with Apple and increasing predictions that the uh, super cycle of cell phones and smartphones is dead. Why is this now a theme since we've known this for years now? Well, it's more the fact that last year, heading into the um, iPhone 10 cycle, there was some hope or at least or expectation or at least hope, I should say, that there, this would be another super cycle. The iPhone 6 is with the last super cycle. That was a generation of phones which spurred, you know, really stratospheric growth numbers and uh, and it carried on for two or three years. There was hope that this would be kicked off again with the iPhone 10. So far, that absolutely has not materialized. And uh, the... Christmas numbers, the numbers in the Christmas quarter were okay. Uh, the sales numbers, were, the actual unit sales numbers weren't great, but Apple was able to squeeze more dollars out of every phone, and so the, um, the revenue number continued to grow. The big question mark was going to be over this March quarter. To what extent does appetite for the iPhone 10 hold up? That clearly hasn't proven to be the case, it seems, judging by um, how what the suppliers are saying. Today, it was AMS, an Austrian um, company, which makes uh, a lot of the components going into uh, the 3D sensors. And um, they have said that they've got capacity which is being unused in Singapore right now or in Asia broadly right now. Any chance that new screen technology is going to revive people's interest in getting a new phone? I mean, my take is no. I mean, the, the, the new screen technology was Mark Gurman, I think, referring to his scoop a few weeks ago that Apple is developing. Well, you know, who is the leader in screen technology right now? It's Samsung. Apple buys most of their stuff from Samsung. So it's the extent to which Apple is able to introduce new stuff. By the time it comes to market, the odds are it's going to be catching up with what Samsung has already. So it, they, are, they seem to be behind the curve on this front. Um, 
I, I don't know if you know anyone who said that they bought the iPhone 10 because it had an OLED screen. You know, if you, I think if you go up to most people on the street and you ask what an OLED screen is, they would have not the foggiest idea. Um, it, it, it's something that the fanboys really like, but those guys are going to buy a phone anyway. Right. So it, it doesn't seem to be a massive differentiator to me. Alex Webb, thank you so much for being with us. Alex Webb, European technology columnist for Bloomberg Gadfly. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.